I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Legendary thorn in the side of architects Michael Gove named housing secretary. London co-living pioneer teeters on the verge of administration. TV architect Kevin McLeod backs radical housing reform. Skateboards and walkers replace taxis and buses at Strand Aldwych. And furniture flies at an explosive planning meeting in Camden. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. This week's show is being recorded live at the Museum of the Home as part of its first ever Festival of Home. My special guests this week are Catherine Slesser, President of the 20th Century Society, and the architect Thomas Aquilina. Welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Our first story is all to do with the cabinet reshuffle, which has gripped headlines across the past week and was covered in the AJ and all over the built environment media. In a shock move, the Prime Minister sacked troubled Housing Minister Robert Jenrick, filling the position instead with the controversial former Education Minister Michael Gove, who famously ran against Boris Johnson in the race to be Conservative's leader. The appointment to oversee one of the most important parts of the construction industry comes 11 years after Gove hit out at the architectural profession, claiming, quote, architects creamed off cash from school building projects. He then went on to abolish the £55 billion Building Schools for the Future programme introduced by the previous Labour administration shortly after the coalition government formed in 2010. In 2011, he also succeeded in alienating architects even further, commenting at a free schools conference, quote, We won't be getting Richard Rogers to design your school. We won't be getting any award-winning architects to design it because no one in this room is here to make architects richer. What an odd thing to say. He later later admitted ditching the programme was one of his worst mistakes. Speaking on BBC's Andrew Marr show, he said, quote, It was not so much that it was wrong to save public money. It was done in a crass way, insensitive way, and it taught me a lesson. Yeah, I really hope so. Now, taking over from the controversial Jenrick, Gove, he lives in a what looks like a very expensive house in Earl's Court neighbourhood. Uh, it looks like it, he owns his own home. It doesn't look like he's personally in any kind of housing need. Um, he'll be tasked with diffusing the row 
over the government's proposed planning reforms, something we've talked a lot about on Lundown before. And these are reforms which have sparked a backlash from backbench Conservative MPs uh, and are rumoured to be teetering on the brink of collapse. So, Kath, what do we know about Michael Gove? And what might this surprise move mean for housing in London and for architects? Well, Merlin, um, like me, Michael Gove is from Aberdeen, but unlike me, he was adopted by a fish merchant and his wife, and he went to the same school as my brother, so they may have rubbed shoulders in the playground. Um, Gove's parents were actually Labour supporters, so they must be very disappointed in the way he's turned out. Though a little-known fun fact is that when he was a rookie journalist on the local Aberdeen paper, the Press and Journal, he was on a picket line during the strike. But any traces of socialism have since been scrubbed clean and wrung out. Um, I get the sense that he's a typical unionist Tory Scott, ambitiously on the make, and that there's a lot of unfinished business between him and Boris Johnson. So this latest cabinet elevation is Johnson's way of keeping your friends close, but your enemies closer and busier. Because uh, not only does Michael have to grapple with housing, local government and communities, but he's also been given the responsibility of saving the union from the increasingly strident calls for Scottish independence and potentially Irish unification. And he also uh, has the unenviable task of implementing the government's levelling up agenda. So Michael's going to be a very busy boy, but he's seen as someone who gets things done and he doesn't mind being unpopular. And only yesterday, in fact, with his feet barely under the table, Gove announced that the government's proposed overhaul of the planning process would be paused. So obviously there's been a fair amount of squealing uh, from Shire Tories <laughs> about what they see as concreting over the green belt. And they fear that their NIMBY constituents will chuck them out at the next election if these reforms are implemented. So Gove has been handed this slightly hot potato and it's not yet clear what he'll do with it. But the fact that things have been poor suggests that the proposals will be watered down in some way to pacify Shire Tories, which means that there will still be a lack of new housing and less work for architects. But as we know, Gove doesn't especially care about architects and seems to take a deliberate delight in setting himself against certain professional classes uh, when he took on and infuriated teachers when he was Secretary of State for Education. It's interesting, however, that like Boris Johnson, Gove comes from a journalistic background and is therefore used to taking uh, quite calculated contrarian positions on issues without necessarily understanding or caring about what he's pronouncing on. So I think the future is desperately gloomy. I really like that, Cathy. I think particularly yeah, the hot potato, it really is like you know, Boris Johnson to his old mate Michael Gove, here, have a cupcake of pure excrement in the form of planning reform. <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas, housing secretaries never seem to last long in the position. We've had something like five incumbents in this role in the past six years. Um, and planning reforms pretty much seem to come along at an almost equal rate. Um, so why is it that housing always lacks a kind of long-term champion? And what are the consequences of this lack of leadership for a city like London? When I last checked, I think sometime earlier this year, the average length of time for a UK cabinet minister was something like, 757 days, which is unbelievably shorter than the average tenure of a Premier League football manager. <laughs> Until last season, they tend to last up to about 828 days. <laughs> so this comparison between cabinet minister and Premier League football manager, I think uh, brings to the fore 
this idea about um, deep expertise in a subject. And I suppose really it, it um, highlights that this government is symptomatic with an attitude of putting someone likely to fail in charge of something so important. Governance and politics is, and it should be, an accumulated task. Um, and I think rather than what is to come, which will probably be another grand vision, we should be aspiring to more of a grand adjustment. And two years ago, I wrote an essay that looked at urban guardianship. The title for that was The Architect as a General Practitioner. For me, I wanted to rethink the culture that we're part of as architects, often waged in competition, exploitation and judgment, and often indifferent to care and nurture. So I asked myself a sort of a thought experiment. Can an architect be more akin to a medical general practitioner? In this model that I had sketched out in this essay, I said, well, if architects were to understand their local urban environment and have a duty to design as well as care for it, in this imagination, the built environment will be cultivated whilst social relationships will be nurtured. And I think it strengthens the architect's generalist role. Admittedly, I don't quite know where Michael Gove plays in this model, but I certainly hope it would be a more of a radical questioning of the political economy of architecture and cities. Our second story this week has been covered by a number of industry websites, including BizNow and React News. It's all to do with co-living giant The Collective, which, it has been reported, is teetering on the brink of administration after the devastating effects of the pandemic on occupancy rates. Planning for a major expansion before Covid first hit, The Collective had seven London, one Dublin and five US buildings all in the pipelines. That's along with three buildings already in operation. Upcoming developments included The Collective Stratford, designed by London Architects PLP. Described as an ecosystem of working, playing, creating and living, housed within a new tower typology, this high-rise design included a shared gym, a sauna, library, cinema room, communal kitchens, outdoor hot tub and roof terraces. And of course, all the residents will get along cordially in these spaces. With four times as many projects under construction than completed and falling occupancy rates due to global lockdowns and travel restrictions, Credit Suisse tried and failed to find a buyer for the financially stricken company. In a last-ditch attempt, the collective has now hired a global consultancy firm to begin selling off various parts of the firm and its holdings. Across the board, shared space living developments have suffered during the pandemic, with office space provider WeWork pulling the plug on its subsidiary WeLive, and US co-living counterpart Quarters following suit in January. So, Kath, what is the co-living model? Can it work? And why has the collective seemingly failed so spectacularly? Good questions, Merlin. Um, when I was much, much younger, co-living simply meant flat sharing and the usual tribulations of living with other people, trying to make sure that no one nicked your milk or your stash. <laughs> but according to the collective's website, it means to, and I quote, Connecting spaces designed to bring incredible people together. Our community might just contain your next friend, lover or mentor, end of quote. So basically, it's upscale living for young renters, where they have individual studio flats with kitchens. And they share communal facilities, such as dining rooms, spa, swimming pool, library, games rooms, etc. Um, you can use it like a hotel and stay for just one night, or you can live there for up to a year. 
So in a way, it's a bit like glorified student accommodation with glamorous young singles ones wafting around this cross between a hotel and a block of flats. But it doesn't come cheap. Uh, the Canary Wharf development, I looked on the website, you can pay between £1,300 and £1,700 a month for your bijou studio room, but you do get a rooftop pool thrown in. Um, so I suppose in the pre-COVID era when everything was going swimmingly, no pun intended, this kind of proposition appeals to affluent younger people who don't necessarily want a claggy house share in Crouch End. So there was obviously a ready niche market for this kind of thing. Uh, and it sort of reminds me of a young person's home rather than an old person's home, where everything and everyone is whizzy and gorgeous and, you know, everybody gets along. Um, but COVID, unfortunately, has effectively dampened demand for this kind of thing and also impacted on the quality of the experience. If you can't enjoy socialising together because households can't mix and the pool is closed, it becomes an almost Ballardian scenario locked in your bijou studio room. Um, so that has conspired to kill the concept for now, and it looks like it's all slowly unravelling because they can't find a buyer for the firm. But there's no reason, in principle, why it shouldn't work. Uh, it's just like everything has been impacted by the pandemic. It was totally unforeseen. And inevitably now the money men are getting cold feet and their sphincters are clenching. So it's, you know, bye-bye <laughs> co-living for now. Yes, Cathy, I really like that. I mean, it's effectively a kind of sourced-up house share for the children of the extremely rich. I mean, yeah. it, it does rather make me think, does it have a special room where the parents can arrive and, like, do an in intervention, have, have a chat to the wayward sprog? Uh, or a, um, yeah, the entire 35th floor is a rehab zone run by the Priory. Yeah. Um, so, Thomas, you know, what does this apparent imminent failure tell us about our relationship with home and also the sense of belonging? Yeah, what can you tell us about those models that work and the ones that don't? Mm. Well, well, I suppose the, the collective model that, that was portrayed here is another highly formatted, standardised, vertical apartment that sort of encloses urban life from the street. And I, and I suppose we should probably return to the street um, to, to kind of think about this idea of belonging. So for me, if I take my own walk... Uh, daily along my street in, in, in South London, Cold Harbour Lane. It has allowed me to know my neighbourhood and I suppose my sense of belonging intimately through its crowd of buildings and its people. I feel an allegiance to this place because a part of my heritage is also inscribed into the urban fabric. So in a way, walking this urban microcosm reminds me of how we seek home and how unstable it can be, even when we think we found it. The street is something so constantly shifting. It's an amalgamation <clears throat> of long-term residence and the provisionally settled. So this relationship between not just one kind of people, as in the case of this co-living model, but multiple people mixing, full of migration histories, and also always in motion, in a sense, then, the co-living model is something more of a kind of splintered form of city-making. It's sort of, if you like, it's bypass urbanism. Um, and in a way, I think it misses or it seriously misreads what the city needs to address the critical question of fixed inequalities. We need to be looking at places much more like markets, ports, 
mosques, churches, bus terminals, low-cost, low low-income housing, university campuses, but places that are the domains of, I think, a much more true sense of belonging. Thomas, that is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's certainly also just a great thing just to think about that belonging and like where you feel a sense of belonging in your daily life or when you're in the city. Like, I don't know if I do in many places. I'm thinking of, I probably feel quite a sense of belonging when I'm on my bike on like a nice cycle lane. And I feel like a great sense of belonging actually when we're together recording this show. But it does want to think, you know, if, if I was to feel a sense of belonging in the collective, I'd probably need uh, a trust fund. Uh, <laughs> I'd probably need the latest iPhone every year. And I'd probably, I'd probably have to sort of make a fortune on crypto every morning and brag about it to my mates. You know? And then I'd really, yeah, I'd really, that would be my territory. So our next story, it was covered in The Guardian. It's all to do with Grand Designs presenter Kevin McLeod. Uh, much loved by many as TV's face of architecture. Well, it's clearly not the TV I'm watching. Um, his programmes voyeuristically explore the true financial and emotional costs of building a dream home. Often following outrageous and eccentric individuals and projects, the programme is more concerned with the personal and economic struggles of the 1% than it is with issues surrounding policy and the housing crisis. However, in an interview with The Guardian last week, McLeod shared a surprisingly progressive take on the need for housing reform. He said, quote, Our planning system unwittingly has worked in cahoots with capitalism to create an unsustainable development economy. He then went on to say, quote, what's really needed is a complete radical state controlled distribution of land and a removal of land profit from the equation. OK, so Thomas, you know, McLeod, he's actually not the only TV celebrity to call out housing policy. So recently, George Clark, also very, very famous, spoke out against right to buy on BBC's World at One. Why is it such a big deal that these people, who are extremely influential within the public sphere, are speaking out on these issues? Look, I think it raises the question of how you can create a kind of conversation or, or a language that is spoken between all these different parties. Um, and it also raises this issue of, I suppose, the, the celebrity culture. I can see why that would help push an agenda. I don't think it would... Let's say produce the radical reform that we need, um, but there are some examples in, in in recent years. In 2019, the Sterling Prize was awarded to the high-density Goldsmith Street social housing scheme. Uh, I suppose I think two years before that, Neve Brown was finally awarded the IBA's World Gold Medal. And those are two examples of, of I suppose, architecture that is courageous gritty and trying to put people at the forefront of, of housing. Um, and it couldn't be further away from the kinds of TV that McLeod has, has produced in, in recent decades, um, which is all about the, the, the individual home and the celebration of single buildings. Housing is an area that architects really have to urgently re-engage. I think something like 80% of a city's fabric is made up of housing. But with that, with the neighbourhood, it includes all the other kinds of layers to the city, the creche, swimming pools, uh, the schools, the hospitals. And, and so when we look at housing, we need to look at it in a, in a much broader, much broader way and not leave it simply to market forces. 
Kath, do you think this signals a change in the cultural environment surrounding architecture and housing? Could celebrities getting involved with the politics of housing and architecture then translate into some real change? Well, Merlin, basically, we need to talk about Kevin. It would be nice to think so, but it seems unlikely, as the main issue, as Kevin himself points out, is the, to do with land values and land hoarding which translates into maximising development on it to make a profit. Hence, the UK has some of the smallest domestic space standards in Europe, with new homes averaging 70 square metres compared with Denmark's whopping 137 square metres. And I think uh, underlying all this, uh, it's somewhat ironic that someone who has spent 20 years on television making a very good living, peddling what is in effect house porn, now turns around and feigns disdain about the corrosive iniquities of the UK housing system. I mean, frankly, if there were less grand design-style programmes, which are predicated around fantasy homes for rich people, and more analysis of why the UK system of land ownership is so venal and housing standards so mean, then we might get somewhere. But as far as I can see... The aim is to stupefy people into caring about whether some richest creases grotesques will get their 100 grand kitchen built in time. Uh, so clearly there needs to be some fundamental dismantling and reframing of housing procurement because having a proper home is such a fundamental issue for social cohesion, mental health, all these things. But personally, I can't see celebrities caring that much about the lives of ordinary people. And it has to be said, when Kevin has dabbled in housing provision through his vanity project, Happiness, Architecture, Beauty, it has gone slightly tits up at times. So I yearn to see a change in the cultural environment around architecture and housing. It needs more than Kevin suddenly deciding to see the light. Our fourth story was covered in the AJ. It's all to do with the first phase of plans by Landscape Architects LDA Design to remove traffic from part of the Strand, which is now underway. The £30 million plans at Strand Aldwych in central London will remove vehicles from the street in front of Somerset House and King's College London. It will create a new public space around St Mary Le Strand Church. The installation of a free temporary pop-up skate park outside Somerset House, called Skate the Strand, uh, will run until the 24th of September. It marks the start of the transformation of the 200-metre stretch along the north bank of the Thames. Kath, you're a local to the Strand. In your view, what is the value of creating pedestrian spaces like these in central London, and what are the, some of the successful or not-so-successful examples of pedestrianisation around London? Well, Locals of the Strand makes me sound very exotic, like I live in Somerset House. Um, but I'm really pleased about the Strand's pedestrian makeover because at present it's such a noisy, polluted and inhospitable one-way street. Cars streaming around poor old Mary Strand, that lovely Baroque church marooned in the middle of it all. Um, and the connection with Somerset House, where you can walk through and get onto Waterloo Bridge, also works really well. And I think what the Covid lockdowns really showed was that streets without cars... Uh, become much nicer, much more civilised places. And there are obviously health benefits in a reduction in pollution, but also mental health benefits as well, being able to walk, cycle, sit, commute, eat, drink. Um, and some European cities are looking at car-free centres, uh, Barcelona, Nuremberg and Ghent, for example. So London is still some way off uh, being that radical. Um, but places where pedestrianisation has worked well in London... Um, the north edge of Trafalgar Square, for example, has made a huge difference to that area. Um, Centre Point, the area around Centre Point, used to be a bus lane, and now that's been pedestrianised, so the new buildings on Charing Cross Road are fairly dismal. Uh, and under lockdown, Soho was partly closed to traffic, so restaurants could use the roads, 
But that looks like just being reversed, so I think that seems very short-sighted. Thomas, you know, obviously it's tempting to see projects like this as a major step forward for all of London. You know, oh yeah, we're creating these beautiful spaces. Um, but we know that some of the most socially deprived parts of the capital also have the worst air quality. Uh, and if you're poor from a minority background, you're more likely to live in areas with severe air pollution. So why is this upgrade being given to a famous West End street when at the same time, little's being done to improve the health and lives of people living next to major roads and also planned new roads like the Silvertown Tunnel, which just so happen to be outside the centre. Interestingly, if we look at places like Tower Hamlets, for example, um, which is arguably one of the, the, the most deprived boroughs in, 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 in London, um, I think when, when on Whitechapel High Street, you are uh, confronted with you know, long-standing inequalities and that's only made or only exacerbated all the more uh, through the pandemic where we've seen disproportionate majority of, of essential workers from black and minority ethnic communities all the more likely exposed and it feels like there's this constant layering of uh, exposure but also of exclusion. Um, so in my mind, what would be critical to this is not thinking necessarily about um, pedestrianisation, but also about the other kinds of infrastructures. And one thing that I've always championed, and I hope Open City can do this in its broader remit of making the city more open, is to expand the, the useful cycle scheme of Santander. Not these drop-it-where-you-like electric e-bikes, e but, but making higher bicycles a genuine attempt at trying to make the city more open by expanding its scheme much further into the periphery. Uh, um, I think by doing that, you... And maybe there's schemes involved where it's not a 30-minute time limit, but it's much longer. Um, and perhaps there's certain kinds of levies involved that, that then allow for these bikes to perhaps even be used free of charge for um, some of the furthermost boroughs. But the fact that that cycle scheme exists almost on top of this very location on, on the Strand and in and around. Um, frustrates me at times when I'm trying to, to get outside. Um, and, and I think it just sort of speaks to, to, to this sort of unfair land, landscape. There's not, there's the Santander, the, the, it stops at Camden Road Station. There's nothing further north than Camden Road Station. And there's nothing in southeast London. And it's, you know, it's... And it's, I mean, it got me cycling, you know, fat old, old person like me sort of waddling along on a bike, but actually got me cycling. And it could get other people cycling. It's a great way of, I cycle day to day, it's a great way of getting around. Infrastructures where you are reducing the uh, motorised vehicle is, is what is, it's going to create better air quality. Our final story appeared in the AJ and the Metro. It's all to do with a Camden Council planning committee meeting, which turned very sour, ending up with an angered local resident throwing a chair. Tempers flared when the council approved plans for a four-home brick scheme by Takari Works on an empty plot in Gondar Gardens, West Hampstead. The now ex-housing secretary, Robert Jenrick, shared a video on Twitter which appeared to show two locals hurtling abuse at councillors. The duo heard to say, you're turning London into a hellhole. Um, the plans were recommended for approval and came after an earlier six-home design for the site by Emirates Architects was rejected by the council in September 2020. 
A planning report noted that objections had been received from nine local residents as well as from three next door to the site, a war councillor and the local residents association. Following the raucous meeting, Jenrick weighed in by saying that councillors should never have to experience abuse for doing their jobs or helping increase housing supply. Um, now, I think, you know, obviously, this is really, really interesting. And Thomas, I, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this because I kind of want to know, you know, how a small number of brick houses could trigger such a violent response. And I've had a bit of thought about this myself. And I thought that, um, you know, part of it, it seems to be like someone's under a lot of stress or someone's under a lot of anxiety often comes from when they're under a lot of pressure and they have very little control. Mm-hmm. So if I try and empathise with this outburst, I think, well, maybe they were they were under a lot of pressure and they felt they had no control over the situation. And at the start of the show, you said something very, very interesting about sort of rethinking architects and rethinking them a bit more like the GP, a Mm -hmm. bit more like in that kind of mode of a profession. And is there something in that where through accepting that level of professionalism, it might help people feel they've got a bit more control over things like planning? Because clearly so many people feel they have no control over it. And that is why chairs are being thrown. It's good to, to sort of return to that, that earlier point um, and how we can strengthen the, the generalist role of the architect. But it really, the, 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 the nux, the, the crux of this is, is trust. And if local communities feel that they um, have no control, that their anxieties are uh, building and exacerbating, then that speaks to a lack of trust. Trust politically, but also trust um, in planning and in the local authorities. So somehow um, we need to, to build that. And I think the model of the architect as the, the GP would suggest, for example, that when you go to see your uh, local GP, you trust them to um, give you the best advice. You trust them to be there the next time you go along. There's a sort of implied duty of care but also um, I think that there's uh, a kind of long-term commitment and those are the things that uh, we need to see um, really at the at the um, level of the planning authority can you build um, long-term solidarity how do you do that you do that through through I think making more meaningful um, dissolve powers right at the local level and, and hopefully slowly recognising this as an accumulated task you would build trust and certainly that, that sort of comes back to your idea of taking some of the housing out of the politics and then you know, getting, getting someone to do that job in a long term nature someone who people trust um, Kath, what do you think the future of planning should look like? Um, does this incident tell us that asking incendiary chair-throwing locals for feedback on new housing proposals is ultimately more trouble than it's worth? Uh, Or is the occasional burst of passion a fair price to pay for a democratic planning system? Well, I have no idea what the future of planning should look like. Um, And I've often wondered who would be a planning officer because I think a lot of them are failed architects. I know a lot of them are failed architects uh, who enjoy pettily exercising power. And obviously, you shouldn't throw chairs in meetings of any kind, though I've often been tempted. Um, And I suppose it's clear that feelings about proposed schemes often run very deep. And we've talked about the issue of trust and powerlessness. And in a democratic system, people do have the right to make their views heard. So we've sort of come full circle on this because as a kind of chair 
throwing objection to housing schemes is what will be exercising Michael Gove as he looks forward to whether to push forward with the planning reforms. How many chairs could be thrown in Tory Shire as the mind boggles? Um, so perhaps it's a useful test of the national mood, uh, chair throwing. Uh, personally, I think throwing shoes is more cathartic, like that time, wonderful time an Iraqi journalist, Mutanda al-Zaidi, who is on Twitter, by the way, threw both of his shoes at George Bush during a press conference. Um, but he ended up serving nine months in prison for it. But um, he is now known as the shoe guy, and he, I think he thought it was well worth it. So throw your shoes rather than chairs. And please, in the audience, no one throws shoes at me. <laughs> Um, Kath, Thomas, it's been an immense pleasure to have you both on The Lundown. Thank you for joining us this week. Um, where can our listeners keep up to speed on your writing and projects and things that you're working on? Look out for both um, After Party, um, New Architecture Writers, which is a pedagogical experiment in trying to give voice to underrepresented uh, people within architecture who have an interest and want to amplify writing and criticism look out for them, new architecture writers. Uh, well, I uh, can be found haunting Twitter, uh, as, as lots of people are, uh, but I'm also uh, in my capacity as um, a president, president of the uh, 20th Century Society, Madam President of the 20th Century Society. I am, uh, it's a ceremonial position, but it means that occasionally I get called into bat and write letters to the Times about outrageous things and hopefully I shall be crossing swords with the dreadful Nadine Doris who once ate an ostrich anus live on television so every time she pronounces on culture just think about that. <laughs> Fantastic and thank you once again for coming on this special London Live recorded at the Museum of the Home as part of its first ever Festival of Home. Hopefully they invite all three of us back again next year. You've been listening to The London a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.